I invite you to turn in God's Word to the book of Ecclesiastes. I appreciated Drew's uh, sermon last Sunday from 1 Timothy 6, helping us to get uh, off to a strong uh, start this year in our Christian lives. And this morning, I want to, if you will, sort of uh, ride that uh, wave uh, for a bit and to uh, think about the year before all of us uh, and how we are to make and can make the most of it. Uh, You may have noticed in recent weeks, whether it's in the media or just in ordinary conversation, that people are trying to get psyched up. Uh, they're trying to, uh, to get you psyched up for 2020. Uh, they're trying to be a positive uh, with all the things that are going on in society and in the culture. They're trying to strike a positive tone and note, uh, although they are rarely biblical. Uh, offering novel insights on how to, quote, from one particular person, reclaim your ability to create the world that you want in the new year. Or you find these phrases, they're, they're trying to get you to uh, deepen your spiritual space or to move out the stagnant energy, to beam the light, to claim a better feeling experience, to reject the belief system of lack, to enter the no-judgment zone, to forgive yourself, which is no surprise when you consider the way that the world thinks about life, purpose, and spirituality and circumstances. It's interesting, if you go and you look at the best-selling books of the last year, you'll find some of these same themes, such as stop believing the lies about who you are, uh, becoming who you were meant to be, the need for shame-free living, Embracing and achieving goals, being confident, brave, and beautiful, finding personal freedom, and the need to stop doubting your greatness so that you can start living an awesome life. I'm feeling better already. (laughs) Not really. Uh, This is my concern. Uh, Not so much that the world believes that way. But the church, the church and the number of Christians who have bought into these kinds of of, of ideas to one degree or another, professing believers who will charge into 2020 with optimism and positivity, wanting to make a difference and to meet personal goals. And I'm all for having right attitudes and striving for excellence and making plans, but not when reality is ignored and biblical truth is set aside. Uh, Not when these things become just another offspring of the prosperity gospel. And certainly not when people begin to act like they can control their future. Uh, it's, It's like we have embraced a... Uh, You could call it a Christianized version of karma, believing that if they follow the formula, even in some cases a formula for righteous living, that they can control whether good or bad will happen to them, believing that they can guarantee the life that they want and avoid pain and hardship altogether. Now, this is a real problem. Uh, But it isn't a new problem. In fact, it's been around for a very long time, so long that King Solomon, who lived in the 10th century BC, warns us about it in this book, which represents, in some ways, the heart-rending autobiography of his life. Israel's most powerful king at the end of his life, having gone from being a wise leader to a foolish one, but ultimately repenting and then writing to warn subsequent generations not to make the same tragic errors that he had made. And on the flip side, helping us to know how fulfilling life can be when we see things from God's perspective. That being said, Solomon 
isn't very interested at this point in talking about the pretend world or claiming a better feeling experience. He's interested in the real world. The one where you can't buy whatever you want. Uh, the one where, where doctors can't make every, everyone better. Where making amends with other people is sometimes the hardest thing possible and relationships aren't always reconciled. And Solomon makes no bones about it. Life is frust- frustrating. Life outside the Garden of Eden and this side of eternity. There's a frustration that God has imposed on this earth because of the curse of Genesis 3. Solomon knew that, and he knew the significance of it, and he wanted others to know it as well. But he also wanted others to learn how to live wisely in this world so that their frustration can be reduced or minimized to show us how to walk with wisdom in a world that has been bent and twisted by Adam's fall, to show us how to steer around and to avoid, if you will, some of the potholes, some of the preventable potholes in life, while looking forward to a time when God will make all things new and will judge the hearts of men. That is the book of Ecclesiastes. One of God's gifts to help us to live in the real world. Now, when we come to our passage for today, it's clear from these verses that we are approaching the end of Ecclesiastes. There are actually four more chapters to go, but it's time for Solomon, the preacher, to begin spelling out his conclusions and lessons learned. And they are profound. So let me read, for, uh, read the text for us. We're going to be picking up in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So Ecclesiastes 8, we'll pick up in verse 16. Reading here from the English Standard Version. Solomon writes, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the, the, business, or the busyness that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate... Man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with a wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. 
Well, there you have it, a, a picture of life in God's world. It's, it's Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. And it's clearly a hammer that is meant to smash any notion that we may have that we can be like God. For anyone who aspires to have it all, to, to know it all, to do it all, to achieve it all, to have all the answers, to never be left scratching their head, and to be remembered by all for all time, these words are a hammer blow, shattering our illusions that we can control our own lives, that we back God, can back God into a corner or that we can decide our destinies, destroying our idolatries, waking us up out of our false assumptions about the world being neat and tidy and explainable. But this is what we need, brothers and sisters. We need God's wisdom as we move forward into a new year. Not more positivity, not more formulaic thinking, but to be grounded in biblical truth to fear God and to walk in his ways by faith. That is why Solomon says in this pat that this passage what he says here is so critical because it gives us clarity it gives us a path forward a clear path forward. You want more clarity about your future whether that's a new year or a new week or a new day Solomon says here it is. You want more stability? You want God's wisdom that will keep you on track and to help you to be faithful? Here it is. And Solomon breaks this down for us, I think, into three parts. We might say three, three realities that we must keep in view if we're going to walk wisely in a world gone wrong. And we're going to walk through these one at a time. And the first is simply this that there are many things in life that will be enigmatic and elusive. There are many things in life that will be enigmatic and elusive. That is to say, there are many things that will be difficult to interpret or to explain. And many things that will escape our grasp in terms of lasting significance. So let's be honest with ourselves this morning. Some things are obvious to us. Some things we do understand. But most things we don't. Uh, we've got a lot of questions. Solomon had lots of questions and struggled with lots of things. The seeming inequities of life. The injustices. Why it is that the wicked live their lives full of evil, and when they die, they are praised as if they were the greatest people in town. Why it is that the righteous sometimes die young while the wicked live long and prosper. And Solomon knew firsthand the temptation that we face to try to find some way to guarantee that we find what we want some way to get around God and his providence and to secure joy in this life, which produces all kinds of futile and reckless ventures. We see that in Solomon's life in 3D. The truth is we often don't know how things will turn out. Even when we've been obedient to the Lord, the result of our obedience is uncertain. We don't always know what God intends to work out through our, obe our obedience and our submission. God does move in a mysterious way. But we're often frustrated by that fact because we like the predictability of God's blessings, right? We like, we like the steady advance and the clear path. We, we like being able to see what lies ahead. But God doesn't give in to our selfish demands. Sometimes he brings the sunshine, and other times he brings the storm clouds. Why does he do that? 
so that we won't imagine that we can know or control the future. Sure, we prefer that God would would not alternate prosperity and calamity because we are much more comfortable feeling like we know the future and have some control over it than trusting God with an uncertain future. And obviously, we would prefer to have perpetual blessing in our lives, but but that would only lead us to treat God like cough syrup, right? Something that we don't need unless things are going bad. So to protect us from that, God keeps us guessing for the purpose of keeping us trusting. Listen carefully to these verses again. Verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Brothers and sisters, we need that reminder. We don't know the future. We don't know in detail what's in store for us in 2020. And God wants it that way. He wants it that way. Why does he want it that way? So that we'll stop trying to control him. So that we'll stop turning his proverbial principles in God's words about blessing the righteous and troubling the wicked into some kind of an absolute principle that allows us to predict the outcome so that we won't think that God is someone who is obligated to do what we want him to do? Listen, God God will not be boxed in by our righteous living or our magical faith formulas. He will bring unexpected trials into our lives, We won't know all the details. There will be enigmas because God wants you to believe in him, not a formula. And if you do try to gain control of the world and your life by what you can understand and by what you can do, you'll find that the control that you seek will elude you. For example, consider knowledge and understanding. In some measure, you can understand how the world works. But why does it always rain on the days that you don't bring an umbrella? And why is it that the line that you don't join in the grocery store is always quicker than the one that you do? Or on a more serious note, why do the people that you know and love die young, or suffer ill health while the dictator lives in prosperity into his old age. Or consider what you do in your life. You can pour your whole life into something and it might succeed or it might fail. You might land the big job and the bank might go bust the very next month. You never know. How much control do you really have over whether your job is secure or how healthy you will be or what will happen to interest rates and home prices over whom you will meet and what you will be doing next week, much less in 10 years time? Not very much. And the idea that you can know and control your own future is that's Solomon says that's false wisdom. It's false wisdom. God wants you to have true wisdom. God wants you to know that while you should be prudent and gather the facts and make plans, you still must never get to the place where you're not trusting him with your future. So the gurus of Solomon's day could say what they wanted. And the slick-talking salesmen of the Word Faith Movement in our own day can deceive their audience with all kinds of alluring models and deceitful stories. But the biblical fact is, 
and it's supported by just plain old life experience, that is that you don't know what will happen tomorrow. You don't know. And you can't control it. You may plan, you may predict, but you cannot determine. God will not allow you to bump him off the throne. So there is an unpredictable reality to daily life. Things happened last week that were not on your calendar. And these uncertainties of life can be frustrating. But we're not to be disillusioned or to be disappointed by this reality. We're to accept it. And we're to have this steel-hardened conviction that God is in control of all that happens to us. Whether it's the day of prosperity or the day of adversity, because they are both under His sovereignty. There is no secret formula for guaranteeing that you will experience perpetual blessing. Formula living doesn't work. Solomon says here that some will be loved, some will be admired, some will be praised. Others will be hated. Others will be despised and ignored. It's unpredictable. But it's all in God's hand. It's all in His providence. So this is the refrain. Man cannot discover. He will not discover. He cannot know. You cannot read the signs. You will not, never beat the system. You don't know what is going to happen this week or this year. And that's okay. Life is incomprehensible. Many things are enigmatic and elusive. But God is in control. And he does work in mysterious ways. And if you want to talk about something that has an element of mystery to it, then think about the subject of death. Especially if you view death from, you might say, that, old, that, mosaic, that Old Testament mosaic perspective that would have been familiar to Solomon and to his fellow Jews. That is, through the grid of the expectation that we've already mentioned, the, ex- the expectation that God will bless the righteous and that he will blast the wicked, right? Because as we go through, the, particularly the Proverbs, we, we pick up on those kind of things. You see in, in really uh, much of the wisdom literature, including the Psalms. And if you think about death in that light, it can seem to be a quite confusing thing that the event that we most avoid and ignore and dislike in life happens as often to those who love God as those who don't. And this is really where Solomon draws our attention next in verse 2, chapter 9, and it brings us to another reality that we must keep in view, and it's this, that there is one thing about our future that ought to be expected. There's many things about life that are elusive. There's many things about life that are enigmatic. But there is one thing about our future that ought to be expected. And he brings this up here in verse 2. He writes, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So you think about it. The righteous, the good, the clean, the truth teller suffers the same outcome or happening as the wicked, the unclean, the one who doesn't even acknowledge his sin, and the liar. Which, again, is a mystery to some extent. And Solomon doesn't try to solve this mystery at this point, but he does wanna, want to teach us who fear the, fear the Lord how to handle death. 
Right? We, can't, we can't change death. And so there's no point in disputing with God over this. But we can learn to live wisely within God's plan. Nevertheless, there are certain frustrations regarding death. And Solomon lists some of them here. Verse 3, he says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go in, they go to the dead. By the way, where did this whole death thing begin? Well, you'll remember back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord, the Lord God told the man, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, literally, you could translate that phrase as dying you will die. So this is an inescapable reality where we're all going to die. If, if you are born and live all of your days rejecting God, you're going to die. And if you are born and become a Christian at age 10 and live a Christ-honoring life until you're 80, you're going to die. In fact, Solomon gives us in verse 3 a rather blunt but orthodox summary of life. We are born, we are depraved, we die. Our hearts are full of evil, our hearts are full of insanity. But here's the frustration. Those who, whose hearts have been changed, they die, die like the rest of them. Now Solomon goes on to discuss... Another frustration, I think, regarding death, and that is the, the power of death to steal from you everything that you have done in life. So the idea here is that death is a thief, and we're to view it that way. He Notice there in verse 4, he says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope, or you might say confidence. Confidence of what? That Death awaits him, that, that, that he is in a sin-cursed life, and there is more life to be lived. And then he says, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun." Of course, Solomon isn't denying the afterlife. But what do the dead have left to enjoy under the sun? And Solomon's answer is simply nothing. Solomon says, life under the sun is frustrating. It's, it's dissatisfying at times and it's tiresome. But being alive seems to be, from a certain perspective, better than death. In fact, we usually work pretty hard at trying to stay alive, right? So he says, surely a live dog is better than a dead lion, which sounds a little strange to us, but in the ancient Near East, a dog was viewed as one of the lowest forms of animal life, and the lion, of course, was the king of the beasts. And so Solomon declares here that it's better to be a live garbage scavenger than to be the king of the jungle, but stuffed and mounted on the wall, right? And in that sense, life is better than death, and normally we would choose the one over the other. It's as if Solomon draws a circle, and everything inside that circle is your life under the sun. And that is all at this point that he's concerned about in these verses, and death comes along and takes everything away from you that is inside that circle. Now, again, we know that Solomon anticipated a day of judgment and reward and that he knew all about that reality of life after death. But here he is limiting his scope to life on this earth. And what he says is right, that when you die, you no longer interact with this life. And for that reason, death is a thief. You think about it. If we're limiting our search to our lives under the sun, consider all of the things that death takes from you. 
right? No, no more enjoyment of common grace. No, the birthday of your child, the family vacation, no more influence on the people around you, no more godly counsel, no more marital romance, no more graduations, no more fruit of your labor, no more saving, no more striving for anything. Death takes all that and more. The enjoyment of every earthly activity ends at death. That is certain. We are confident of that fact, and we are fools, Solomon says, to deny it. And then think about this question. Isn't it true that that the final nail in the coffin of the word-faith movement is the reality of death? I mean, if we can speak reality into existence... Right? If we can, by some kind of faith formula, dictate perfect health, if we can write our own ticket with God, then why are all the men and women who started the word faith movement dead? And the ones that are pro- promoting that message even today, they're going to get sick and die too. So this is an important reminder, and, and Solomon says, listen, don't, don't let this slip from your view. Death, death is a thief, and death is something that we should expect. It's the one thing in life that is certain, our death. In a broken and fallen and messed up world, it's an incredibly stark reality that the one thing we can depend on for sure is that we are closer to the point of our death right now than we were when we started looking at this passage. And knowing and living in light of this reality hits us once again at the point of our idolatry. When we say, I want Christ to return soon, but I want to experience this certain thing first, right? I want to get married first, or I want to see the face of my first grandchild, or I just want to get to this certain place in my career. Solomon says, God forbid. And the very fact that death can take these things away from us reminds us that they were never intended to be the object of our trust and hope or the things that we live for. So Solomon says, death is an incredibly frustrating reality. It's frustrating because both the righteous and the wicked die. It's frustrating because when you die, life comes to a screeching halt. And all that you have enjoyed, all that you have planned, all that you have been a part of is cut off. And there are, there are other frustrating things about death. But the question is, how will you handle it? How will you handle the frustration of death? There are several possible wrong ways, I think, to handle that frustration. One is to avoid it, to avoid death. I think this is pretty common in our society. I meet young adults all the time who honestly have never attended a funeral. And they've pretty much grown up, gone through their early childhood, gone into their teen years, and now they're... um, they're young adults, and, and they tell me, I, I've never actually attended a funeral or memorial service. More often now, we're, we're, we're coming across uh, people through our counseling ministry that um, are getting prepared to be married, but have never attended a wedding. So it's, it's, sort of, it's, it's interesting to me that I mean, those are two pretty major life events, <laughs> getting married and death. And yet we have people coming up and for two decades or more, they're somehow dodging those experiences. Dodging the, the, the things that, that are meant to teach us, meant to remind us about what is important in life. And so, so, so people will, will handle this frustration with death in that way. They'll just simply avoid it. They'll refuse to think about it. They'll, they won't talk about it or maybe even refuse to go to a doctor's appointment or to attend a funeral. Or you could swing to the opposite extreme and become totally preoccupied with it. And neither of those would be helpful. So how do you handle it? Well, you certainly don't need to pretend that death 
doesn't exist, right? In fact, listen to what Solomon said back in chapter 7 and verse 2. He said, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will, will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So what do you do? Again, you expect it, and you prepare for it. And you realize that death is the limit that God has placed on creatures who want to be gods. You realize that, that you are not owed three score years and ten. You're not owed that. You realize that from the day you were born, that you have lived under the sentence of death, and you stand amazed that God has spared you as long as he has. And everything you have in this world, you hold with open hands because you love Jesus more than anything or anyone and are happy to go home to him. But remember, preparing to die and to die well doesn't mean that you draw the curtains. It doesn't mean that you dress in black and that you think more with thoughts. Preparing to die means thinking about how to live. Which takes us to the third and final reality that we must keep in view as we think about the future and walking with God, and it's this. There are simple things in life that are intended to be enjoyed. There are simple things in life that are intended to be enjoyed. Again, this is at the heart of Ecclesiastes. Life is not about the meaning that you can create for your own life or the meaning that you can find in the universe by all your knowledge and ambitions and hard work. You do not find meaning in life by finding a marriage partner or having kids or or gaining wealth. You find meaning when you realize that God has given you life in his world and any one of those things as a gift to enjoy. And so Solomon charges us, savor life as a gift. Savor life as a gift. That is to say that while we are living under the sun, we should enjoy what God gives. We should enjoy what God gives. And only the God-fearing person can do that. Only the person who fears God can recognize the transient nature of life and the things of this life, but still enjoy life as a gift from God who made us for himself. The unbeliever says, if only I could have this or that. The believer gets the this or the that, but says to himself, I know that that will never satisfy. But thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Notice Solomon's counsel in verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. It's a command. It's, 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 it's a wake-up call. It's sort of that seize-the-day type of call. It's, it's, it's a wake-up. There's no time to waste. Stop your complaining. Stop, stop feeding your anger. Stop brooding about your problems. Get over your anxieties. Walter Kaiser in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says this, Why should anyone who truly fears God have the joy of life stolen out from under him because of the unresolved perplexities still remaining in the partially disclosed plan of God? Why should those who fear God miss out on that? Now, as in the rest of Ecclesiastes, a God-centered and god granted enjoyment of life is central to the fear of the Lord wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the center of all wisdom literature, whether, whether it's Job or whether it's Proverbs or here in Ecclesiastes. So this isn't a, a hedonism. This isn't an attitude of you only go around once and so party it up, live it up. No, God is at the center of this. God has already approved your works. And this counsel 
from Solomon isn't inconsistent with what he has already said in other places in Ecclesiastes. For example, back in chapter 2, verse 25, he says, For apart from him, God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, I, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. Chapter 5, verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Solomon is simply saying that death will end your interaction with this life. So with God at the center of your life, enjoy the life that he has given you. Life in a Genesis 3 world is hard. Death looms on the horizon, but rather than panic or run or be overly consumed with death, Show that you trust God in regard to death and everything else by calmly enjoying the gifts that he has poured into your life. So the question for us, have you done that? Have you done that this past week? Have you been thankful for the food that you've consumed? Have you been thankful for the music you've listened to? Thankful for the job that he's provided? Thankful for your children? Thankful for the promise that you are his child? Thankful for your spouse or thankful that God understands your desire for one? Thankful for his word, thankful for his church? A God-centered, Christ-centered thankfulness. And then notice verse 8, let your garments be always white, which is really a reference to a celebration. You could think of it this way, make the everyday things special. And then he says, let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, in Solomon's day, they didn't have shampoo, and so they just poured on more oil. All right? That, that's, that's the reality of it. If you, were, if, you were, if you and I were suddenly transported back four or 500 years, the first thing you would notice is the smell. Okay? So, there are no sewers, uh, no deodorant. So, Solomon says, if you will, it's, it's a way of saying, celebrate life and be refreshed. And then notice verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you, whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So Solomon looks at the men and says, is life hard? Is work frustrating? One difficulty after another? And death lurking, who knows, right around the corner? How are you going to handle that? His advice I want you to work hard, go home, take a shower, put on a clean shirt, eat supper, and enjoy life with the woman that God's given you. Because what I find is that when people, because they get caught up in this formulaic thinking, and what that, you have to understand that what that leads to is that when things later on down the road don't turn out the way that you want them to turn out, when your expectations are dashed, then you begin to second guess what you did, and you begin to pull back right? Because you begin to make this assumption that because adversity comes or calamity comes that you must have done something wrong or God must be punishing you for something, right? Because you've bought into this idea that if you, would have, if you did the right things, then good things should happen to you, right? So you get caught up in that formulaic thinking. You think you, you can box God and you can back him into a corner in these things. And so we tend to, I think, because of the uncertainties, So track with me here. Because of the uncertainties, there's so many of these in life, and because of the certainty of death, people, I think, start to become more reserved, right? Because they're always thinking about safeguarding themselves from calamity. And and the counsel and the advice from Solomon is, is the opposite. Enjoy your life. Is life hard? Yes, it's hard. Now enjoy your life. Could something terrible happen tomorrow? Maybe. Enjoy your life. It's so practical. It's, it's just, it's, it's such, in some ways, it's like, it's, it's such, it seems to be so common sense, but, but it's not. It's, this is God's inspired wisdom, right? And we need it. 
It's great counsel. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol or the grave to which you're going. Now, again, Solomon has already warned about the danger of being a two-fisted worker. Excuse me, back in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, verse 6, he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. But with that in mind, God has only given you a small number of years on this earth to serve him. So what has God given you to do? There's no point, Solomon says, in being preoccupied with death, the fall and the pain and the suffering of this life. It's all there and it's all real. But whatever plans you have in this life will immediately come into or immediately come to a stop when you breathe your last. And so his advice is take joy in your work. Enjoy it. Do it all out, right? Go all out while God gives you the opportunity to do it. Love your family, raise your kids, serve in the church, do all that you do with full enthusiasm because that glorifies God. In other words, redeem your short, meaningless existence and labor and pursue the glory of the Lord with all your heart because you only have one shot at your short, vain existence. That is the only way to enjoy this life. Listen, depression begins with limiting limiting your scope to this life. But despair and self-absorption are dispelled when you start focusing on God. And so Solomon says, get after it. Get after it. At some point, Jesus will return or you will die, which could be in the next 15 minutes. But the opportunity to glorify him in this life will be gone. 150,000 people, that's how many people died on Christmas Day. And the day after, and the day after, and the day after. It's coming. It's a reality. We face it. We prepare for it. But don't let that keep you from enjoying the gifts of God. What sober wisdom What wise counsel for dealing with the uncertainties of life and the certainty of death? Solomon walks us through this fallen world, but he doesn't panic and scream, the sky is falling. The sky is falling, right? He faces the problems head on. He grieves them. He's frustrated by them. He knows that the situation is ugly and empty, but he refuses to run toward the welcoming arms of the extreme skeptic, the cynic, the religious escapist, or the hedonist. Rather, he believes that God has not left the mess, but remains here in it and with us. And in light of this, we start with what we have and we do this little bit each day with God. We start with what we know. It's Monday morning. We wake up. Whatever choice we make, for how to use the day makes our conscience restless and ridden with guilt or not. And Solomon helps us here. When it comes to tending our lot with our spouse or family, our work, our food, and our place, God has already told us that he approves of this use of time. When Adam and Eve loved each other and cultivated the garden and took time for meals and cared for the place with God, it was enough in God's eyes. But you say, but we're all going to die. I know. So make me a sandwich. (laughs) But the sky is falling. I know. Let's go for a walk. But everything is meaningless. I know. Now go ahead and wash your clothes. But injustice is everywhere and the government is out of control. I know. Cut the grass. Spend time in prayer. Worship God because he hasn't quit. But it's so frustrating, I know. Now plan your life and work through your pain together. But death is coming, I know. 
So enjoy life with your wife. God is here. But life isn't fair. I know the grief is terrible. But do your work passionately. God will meet you there. Life is hard in a Genesis 3 world. And death is going to steal everything from you. So enjoy, because of that, enjoy God's gifts, says the preacher. Prove that you trust God in death and life by often counting and calmly enjoying his blessings. Not with self-focus, but with wisdom and self-control. And this will help you to minimize the frustration of the bumps and the scrapes and the bruises that come with living life outside the garden and this side of glory in the new year and beyond. Father, you are holy. You are glorious. You are high and lifted up. As one person said, you are too great to approach, but too great not to approach. You are the one before whom we tremble. And you are the only one in whom we find safety and salvation. We confess to you, Lord, that too often we claim to know what we do not know. Too often we dodge the certainties that you have told us we will face. And too often we worship your good gifts rather than enjoy them. We confess that we are too full of our own opinions, too full of complaining, so faithless compared to you. Would you forgive us for our foolishness and our pride? And as we enter a new year and as we enter even a new week, would you give us a heart that wants to listen, that wants to obey, a heart that is focused on honoring you and thanking you in the midst of both adversity and prosperity? a heart that is overflowing with praise and that trusts you at all times. In your name we pray, amen.